0: Well hello there and welcome
1: back from our Christmas break. okay, I'm not making excuses here but I am gonna tell you I am not running on all cylinders today. I don't know why but in recent years it's become kind of a Christmas tradition for me to uh, to throw my back out and so if I sound a little constipated today or just uh, like I'm I'm not quite on top of things, uh it's not the pain meds. I've actually forgone any pain meds uh, for for the time being. I want to have a clear head while uh, while doing the show, but who doggies. I am uh not a happy camper. Other than that it was a wonderful Christmas, but uh wow. I was good right up until the moment I went to put on my socks this morning. Yeah, maybe maybe I shouldn't feel so resentful that uh, AARP has been sending me uh, mail now for a little bit. Maybe I really do fit uh, the demographic that they're trying to reach out to. At any rate, I'm glad you're part of my audience. Thank you for joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show. I would encourage you, please consider going to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and checking out my show notes for today, December 28th. Got a lot of great stuff. Uh, We have a ton of great stuff we'll be covering in the next hour as well. But uh, in this hour, we're going to spend some time talking about who or what poses the greatest threat to our liberty and well-being. Now, if you have been, uh, you know, even a casual listener to this show, you know I don't like to be enemy-driven. So rather than we're going to be naming names of enemies, uh, but I am going to be extending a caution to you about one of the more destructive influences that is present in our lives. And, and it may be something you already understand, or at least you think you understand, but i got to tell you, Caitlin Johnstone says, hey, it's the mainstream media. It's mass media that is doing the most damage through propaganda. Because I think a lot of us, if we were to, if we were to start to saying, well, who poses the greater threat to liberty? Some people immediately would start naming politicians or some other uh, bureaucratic string puller. Caitlin makes a very strong case. No, it's uh, it's the people who are telling you that up is down and you know white is black and so forth, and doing it with a straight face and apparently with a clear conscience because they they don't seem too intent on uh, on on changing their tune anytime soon. We'll also spend a little bit of time strengthening your ability to sort fact from fiction. That's with some help from our friend Paul Rosenberg, who's been publishing a very helpful essays uh, series of essays rather on uh, common fallacies and how to counter them. Why is this important? Well, because it's a given that if you are ever going to stand up for your principles or if you're ever going to defend the truth as you understand it, it's not without risk. And there are many rhetorical tricks that people will use to try to shut you down or shame you or otherwise bulldoze over the top of you in, uh, in getting you to, to be quiet and, and stop making sense. By the way, his latest essay touches on a fallacy that every one of us has encountered, and that is the thought-terminating cliché. Powerful, powerful stuff here. Well, we're also going to be sharing some information on uh, the tragedy of the lockdowns this year. And I know, you know, we could we could sit there and list, you know, case after case of this is where where things have gone horribly wrong. But I like that Phil Magnus, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has actually taken the time to come up with 12. Examples of times the lockdowners were wrong and why we shouldn't be so quick to blindly trust them. I know they look impressive standing there on the TV cameras and they have authoritative titles and they wear nice suits. And, oh, look, they have security surrounding. They must know more than we do. But maybe they don't. And when you hear about some of these uh, missteps and places where they were just dead wrong, maybe it'll shake your faith in them if it isn't shaken already. Also, if there is time, we will spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the, the thing on Earth that is scarier than a goose-stepping tyrant. Because when we think of tyranny, that's usually what we think of, right? Some dude with a funny little mustache and a bunch of followers out goose-stepping all over the place. No, I'll tell you what's scarier. A moral monster who would destroy another person's life through the totalitarian virtue of cancel culture. Rod Dreher has the unsettling story of a a young man who is being celebrated as a hero by the New York Times for sitting on a video for two years of a classmate. It's like a three or five second video. It's a tiny little video, but she used a racial slur. She was 15 years old. And he held on to that video, saved it for the day that she went away to college so he could release it, make it a public sensation, and force her from her college. And by the way, it worked. And I don't know if what's more disturbing, the fact that, yep, his plan worked, or the fact that the New York Times is like, oh, what a great guy, what a great young man. Because if that's the kind of culture that we're trying to encourage, whoo, things are going to get interesting for all of us. It's going to be your turn at some point. You just don't know when. So, yeah, if you think, I can sit this out, I can hide this one out. There's somewhere safe that I, could, that I can just hang where nobody will ever find what I said that was insensitive. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Anything you've posted on social media, anything you've written, anything you've said, anything anything that's gone out over the internet, your turn is coming. Now, this is not to defend, you know, ugly speech so much as to acknowledge sometimes people pop off and it doesn't mean that, oh, well, she must be a racist through and through because she said the N word. Let's just say that uh, all of us are works in progress And uh, some of our dumbest work takes place, you know, in those teenage years. We have just enough autonomy to, uh, you know, to fashion a pretty good noose. And life has given us just enough rope to hang ourselves if we'd like, but we don't have the emotional maturity to necessarily handle it well. One final thought, if we have time for it this hour, we'll talk about the anti-capitalist sentiment. I mean, if if you look at it, in in many ways, the the lockdowns are kind of a, a variation of look. All we're saying is that if you'll just accept communism, then you can go back to life as normal. At least that's what it feels like. Well, those of us who believe in free markets need to be able to make the case for free markets to those around us. That means we have to be able to make a moral case for capitalism. Lipton Matthews has a very powerful, very succinct explanation of how to do so. I think you'll find it useful. And uh, that's, that's where I hope to go today. In the meantime, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope that uh, things are going well as you're, as you're coming back to, uh, to life as we know it. I, I have a, a post here from a friend that I saw on Facebook earlier this morning that uh, I wanted to share just because I think she makes an extraordinary amount of sense. She says, the America I thought existed looks so strange to me right now. Strangers calling each other foul names over wearing a mask, watching each other uncomfortably, wondering if someone will take offense by standing too close, walking in the wrong direction at the grocery store or in the almost empty church. She says, I've seen people almost coming to the brink of insanity over differing opinions because they believe that the news would never lie to them. She says, I've seen our election system turn into a circus to rival any fifth grade girls click. I've seen credentialed experts admitting that they've lied to the public and apparently no one cares enough to bat an eye. She says, I've seen accepted science-based OSHA policies tossed out the window for political leverage. I've seen horrible health practices displayed by the uneducated public. All in the belief that they're protecting the weakest, wearing that mask all day long, touching that germ-infested thing with gloved hands that haven't been changed for hours either. She says, I've I've seen and heard kids panicked because of a virus that's much like any one of the many viruses they've already or will encounter in the future. And poor kids are taught to fear the invisible monster instead of caring for the organism that is them, the one that has an immune system that can be strengthened easily and relatively cheaply. So here's her advice. This is the whole reason I'm sharing this, because I'm sure you've seen what she has observed as well. She says, exercise civility. Stand up for the rights of all people, including yourself. The rights to free speech, association, health, freedom, and travel. They're all in grave danger. She says, stand up. It's not selfishness. It's, It's wisdom. Don't allow party politics to strangle the good that America has been capable of. Apply the common sense that your parents hopefully taught you on a larger scale. Hold those accountable that your tax dollars support. Don't allow them to spend what we don't have. Be responsible for yourself. Have charity toward others. Oh, and I like this last part. And mind your own damn business. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is from my friend uh, Je- Jesse Lynn Pratt, and it is just refreshing. I think, I think she has clarity, and so I'm sharing that with you in the hopes that uh, maybe this is something that, uh, that helps strengthen your resolve in the times like we live, such as we live in. Sorry, poor English, but um, as I mentioned, I'm not exactly running on all cylinders today, so please forgive me if I misspeak or if you hear me wince because uh, my back really, really hurts right now. <laughs> all right, got to take a break. When we come back, We will be talking about uh, the greater threat to our liberty and well being and how it's coming from mass media propaganda. The key isn't so much that, well, we should get government in there and stop them from doing propaganda. Nope. It's that you and I need to become a little bit uh, more seasoned and a little more practiced in how we go seeking truth. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, want
1: to mention too that our show is brought to you in part by fantastic sponsors like uh, Alta Bank Mortgage. That's my friend John Staples. Also, landmark risk management and insurance. That would be my friend Steve Burgess. I'll be telling you more about both of these wonderful businesses and hoping that you will do business with them if you need what they have to offer. If you are looking for particularly commercial insurance or if you're looking for a refinance or perhaps a new home loan. By the way, on the new home loan thing, you probably should move pretty quickly because they've got some great stuff going on at AltaBank through the end of the year, which if you haven't noticed, is getting here right quick. Let's talk about mass media propaganda. Caitlin Johnstone says it is enemy number one. This is from her notes from the edge of the narrative matrix. Listen to how she sums this up. She says the most Orwellian tool, our rulers, of our rulers, which does the most damage and affects the most lives, is not surveillance, nor police militarization, nor government secrecy. It's domestic media, mass media propaganda. And she says it's also the most overlooked. It's good to protest the other mechanisms of authoritarian control, but she says propaganda is enemy number one. You don't need the ability to spy on dissident groups if you can control public thought enough to prevent those groups from forming in the first place. You don't need the ability to quash public uprisings if you can propagandize people away from any rising up at all. And they can. And they do. She says the ability of the plutocratic class to manipulate public thought at mass scale is the single most overlooked and underappreciated aspect of our society. It warps the entirety of our political spectrum, all our thinking, all our discourse, and what we perceive as normal. And you just don't see people fighting it. The ACLU isn't protecting people's mental sovereignty from the manipulations of sociopathic government-aligned oligarchs. People aren't taking the media-owning class to the Supreme Court for brazen election interference. People aren't taking to the streets protesting it. But they could. Now, she says, in terms of the effect it has on society, no tool, no control tool, rather, comes remotely close to advancing as many interests of the powerful against the interests of the people as domestic plutocrat-sponsored propaganda. And she says, nothing will change until people start noticing and resisting this. Theories about elite conspiracies to shore up more control over the population tend to greatly underestimate how much control they already have. Wanting the U.S. government to have a competent leader, she says, is like wanting a serial killer to be skilled at evading detection. And she says a new report says China will overtake the U.S. as the world's biggest economy by 2028. That's the real reason they need you to hate China right now. Mentally replace all their carefully manufactured narratives with this. Now this is just thing, she's just touching on a number of different uh, points at this at this point. But think about what is happening in terms of the information that is coming your way. I was having this conversation with my son as we were were driving to uh, to enjoy our Christmas time with with some family, and uh, my son is twenty three. He's a college student, a university student actually. He uh, he was telling me how how. Challenging it is sometimes to just visit with people. You know, understand, he is not a contender in the sense that he goes out there and picks fights with people just because it's fun to argue. I mean, he'll just simply try to offer a, a very reasoned point of. View. He's he's probably the most diplomatic of all my kids. This young man is a peacemaker. But he said, I don't know how to talk to people who live in such an alternate reality. And I think a lot of that alternate reality comes from the fact that there is, there is propaganda aplenty. How do you counter something that everybody just knows this is the way that it is? And it can take a number of different forms. I mean, look, you know, one of the most common ones is the, the people who live with that, that daily burden of just knowing that Trump is the source of all evil that ever has or ever will exist... And I think to myself, um, okay, assuming that uh, that, uh, a new president is inaugurated on January 20th, all that hate's going to have to go somewhere. Because the source of their hatred and the source of their focus is going to have to change. And this is just my opinion, and maybe this sounds petty, but I'm going to suggest it anyway. If they're that miserable, based on who is in the White House, they're still going to be miserable people once that changes. This is something I've tried to communicate to, uh, to my listeners and to friends and others that I've interacted with over the years. And that is, you know, changing who resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue really doesn't change that much in the grand scheme of things. It's one person. And our system of government was never set up to where just one person is the supreme, you know, Fuhrer and, and leader over the dear leader that uh, can, can do everything that we have no need for any other branches of government. Now, I do happen to believe that all the branches of government are pretty corrupt and and self-serving in how they operate, but my point is simply this. All those people who are so angry and so anxious because Donald Trump was in the White House for the last four years may be just a little bit surprised to find out that they are still miserable and they're still angry when Trump is gone. And and what concerns me is uh, they're going to be looking for an outlet for that anger. I wonder where they will want to direct it. Now, this doesn't mean that you and I need to go out there and bare-knuckle brawl with them in the streets. Proud Boys, I'm looking your direction. It ain't helping. But at the very least, can we agree that if we're going to stand up for what we believe is right or what we know to be true, we've got to be willing to be the kind of people who can bring light and truth to the discussion without bringing anger along with it. And sometimes that's pretty hard to do. In fact, let's, uh, let's shift gears here for just a moment. Let's talk for a moment about, uh, about why it's so important to be able to articulate yourself and argue, and I mean in the sense of discuss and debate, rather than just shout somebody down. Paul Rosenberg, writing for freemansperspective.com, has uh, done a series. So far, I think he's got about 10 different essays here on fallacies that you are likely to encounter as you discuss truth with the people around you. This week's fallacy is the thought-terminating cliché. And as soon as I saw this, I was like, wow. This is, this is one that I think most of us have encountered at some level. He says the thought-terminating cliché, also called thought-stopper or bumper-sticker logic, is more purely a verbal weapon than the rest of the fallacies we've covered. But he says it's very common. The thought terminating cliche is a common phrase, usually catchy and sharp, used to end a discussion. The purpose of the cliche is not to make a rational point, but rather to escape a rational discussion. It's the kind of schoolyard foolishness we'd like to see people grow out of by 10 years old. And it's, here's a couple simple examples. See, you're wrong. Or, well, you're fat. So once again, he says, we find a trick that's positively juvenile, but that's used all the time, and very often successfully. When a discussion goes too far, one side comes up with a trite phrase just like one of these. Well, that's just your opinion. Or, you and your conspiracy theories. Or, now is not the time for this discussion. Or, ah, it's all good. Paul Rosenberg says those sayings add precisely no factual input to any discussion. They are simply attempts to end a conversation. It's a cheap, false, demeaning, and childish way out but he says it's used constantly. In fact, he recently ran into a fine example of it in a discussion with a highly regarded academic. Someone had made a comment on monopolies of violence being a good thing, and he responded, citing the work of Professor R.J. Rummel of the University of Hawaii, calculating 262 million deaths by government in the 20th century. Rummel actually used the phrase democide, rigorous work that rather damned the man's argument. And it was at this point he said that someone called my argument effing absurd. And a professor of political science at one of the top universities of the world chimed in. Now, we're going to have to come back to this discussion because I'm up against the break here. But I want you to remember, he's not having a schoolyard argument with a bunch of kids or a bunch of teenagers shouting slogans. These are credentialed people. Supposedly, you know, the the cream of the cream, (laughs) or the cream of the crop, rather... And uh, and you, you've got to hear how they use this uh, thought-terminating cliché mentality to escape from a discussion where they realize that logic and rational thought is not on their side. We'll take a quick
0: break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back. So glad
1: you could join me on The Brian Hyde Show today. Please consider going to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast. You can share with friends, you know, pass the link around. Leave comments for me. You don't know how much it helps me to hear from you. And, And by the way, leave a comment is not a plea for, please say something nice about me. If there's a way that I could be serving you better or providing better information, I need to know it. So feel free, drop some big pregnant hints and let me know what I can do. And again, that's the com. You'll also find links to my sponsors. And if you so choose, you can become a patron supporter of this program, which enables me to focus like a laser beam on finding the best possible content to deliver to you day in and day out. Right now we're talking about the thought-terminating cliché. This is an essay from Paul Rosenberg from freemansperspective.com. And he's talking about how a discussion about state monopolies on violence turned into a prime example of the thought-terminating cliché. Someone had made the comment, well, it's good that the state has a monopoly on violence. And instead, uh, Paul responded by saying, well, you know, Professor Rumble of the University of Hawaii calculates 262 million deaths by government just in the 20th century. And at this point, someone else chimed in and said, well, that comment is effing absurd. And by the way, I'll just warn you that uh, Paul doesn't bleep out the F word there, but I, it will be in the article. So don't be you know shocked if you see it. And then a professor of political science at one of the top universities of the world chimed in. And here's what Professor Polly Sai said. One problem here is the counterfactual. How many more millions would have been killed without legitimate monopolies on violence? Paul responded, sure, this is fuzzier than a double-blind study, but crime, the other violent killer, continued under all the monopolies, so not a great deal of change is likely. And then Paul pointed out, saying that's effing absurd is a defensive dogma. It conveys no information. At this point, Professor Polly Sai said, well, hyperbole can be equally dangerous, in other words, defending the vulgar dogmatist, rather than touching on Paul's point. Paul said, dangers of any flavor. Ought not be it to be indulged. He was trying to be polite, trying to get it back to a discussion. Polisai said, Like I said, that's the terminating cliche. Paul said, Well, you seem to be devoted to winning, not to communicating. By omission, you condoned throwing effing absurd at someone who is using facts to make a point. Moreover, that's something you accepted as dangerous by saying equally. You've contradicted yourself. And he says, at this point, poli ceased communicating, as did the vulgar dogmatist. Now, he says, I think the points in parentheses make this example clear. And you'll have to, you have to see this conversation as he's written out to the way it, it unrolled. poli sought to get away from his argument by slicing me with my own words, he says. But what she did also was contradict herself. And so you can see that the people at the highest intellectual levels don't operate much differently than the schoolyard name-callers. So here's how this trick works. He says the trick can rest upon several types of emotional pressure. Fear of authority is certainly one of them. Fearing the ridicule of observers is another, particularly on social media. The reason this trick works, though, is cognitive dissonance. That's the discomfort people experience when an idea they've long held as true meets a contradictory idea that seems to be, or that is, based upon better evidence. The terminating cliché works because it offers people a way to escape their discomfort. So the use of the classic terminating cliché, well, that's a conspiracy theory, illustrates this well. And he gives this example. You start discussing something that makes a government look bad. The other person or persons are committed to government is unquestionably good for any number of reasons and become not only uncomfortable but fearful of considering anything else. So accusing you of being a conspiracy theorist is an almost surefire way to shut down the discussion. And so, whatever other reasons may be involved, getting rid of cognitive dissonance is nearly always the secret ingredient that makes this trick work. The terminating cliché, then, is an exercise in non-thinking and non-courage. Now, Paul explains here, new and conflicting ideas are simply necessary to us. It's our job to stand up to them, examine them, and, this is the important part, change our expectations and judgments if required. And if we cannot bring ourselves to do that, we freeze in place. Still, he says, we should try to understand why this is so common. Chief among those reasons is a sad fact, and that is that in the modern West, most people feel like they're facing an incomprehensible world. Traditional ways have been expelled, and their replacements are not just irrational, but stridently anti-rational. While most people do get some clear thinking at home, many millions are left with no distant star to guide by. In this circumstance, he says, people tend to contract their horizons, holding on to whatever they do have and fearing to let go of it, even if letting go is required to get something better. He says, when people can't grasp what's really better or worse, there's no payoff in letting go of anything, only risk. And that's a terrible state to live in, of course. But that's precisely where the major currents in education have brought millions of people. So... What to keep in mind? Well, he says the first thing to keep in mind when getting slapped with a terminating cliche is that the other person has reached the end of their arguments. They wouldn't resort to non-reason if they had any reason left. So, no matter how bad the slap may feel, and it's always worse if others are watching, keep in mind that you pretty well established your facts and they can't refute them. We should also accept the person on the other end is playing the thug. They're not being reasonable or polite, they're being brutish. But he says they're doing this because of weakness and discomfort. And so while you may have the right to reply harshly, it probably won't create a lot of benefit. Rather, it will likely lead to further brutishness. So an obvious response to this probably doesn't have much of a payoff. So he says this is is the response you shouldn't give. That's it? You haven't got the guts to change your mind, so you pull out some trite little slogan hoping that I'll hustle away? (laughs) Now it would feel good to say that, but... He's saying that would be counterproductive. A rather opposite type of response may not have a great deal of payoff either. I'm sorry you're too frightened to think new thoughts, Jim. And I'm sorry you're resorting to verbal thuggery to cover your fears. But what I said is true anyway. He says the most useful response is probably something like this. You've ceased with reasoned discussion. I'll leave you as you are and then walk away. Now, trust me when I tell you, and this is just an aside here, that's hard to do. Because you walking away, they will say, ah, see, you can't handle it. You're walking, look at you, going away. But really, you have just taken the stance that, look, there's nothing productive happening at this point. And the more adult thing to do is to move on. If it's just an argument rather than a discussion, that's a waste of your time. It's a waste of their time, particularly if their only reason for being involved in the discussion is that desire to win. And by the way, this, re- this rarely takes place in person. For some reason, we seem to be a little more capable of that reasoned discussion in person. The place where I see this most likely to play out is online discussions, where it turns into flexing and, you know, throwing around, you know, degrees and credentials. and I mean, it's, it's a pretty sad thing. So if you just tell someone, look, we've reached the point where... Uh, there is not reason discussion taking place here. I'm going to leave you as you are and walk away. Paul says this type of response has some chance of sticking in the other person's mind, or at least in the minds of some observers, and maybe coming back at some useful moment. Once a discussion reaches the, ch- the stage of a terminating cliché, he says you're probably best of treating it as over. Most of us will want to add a defiant end note. We don't want the thug to win after all. But he says we should probably work at getting rid of our desire to win or not lose. Those desires are understandable, but they serve us poorly in most cases. That, however, he says, is a subject for another day. Now, I am 100% on board with what he's recommending here. And and I'm going to tell you from, from personal experience, having put this into practice over the last five years, almost six years, losing that need to win, losing that need to land a parting shot As you walk out of the room, you know, that mic drop moment, boom, and you walk away. If you can resist the urge to do that, you leave the door open for that person to still come to the truth, albeit at their own pace and, and on their own terms. And this is where you and I have to kind of question our own motives. Why were we having that discussion in the first place? Why did we engage? Was it to win? Was it to appear smart? Was it to put somebody in their place who's spouting obvious nonsense online? If that's the case, then maybe our motives are not as pure as we thought they were. And I say this having been more than guilty of this so many times. Getting into arguments online, doing the whole rhetorical domination thing. And, you know, I mean, it's entertaining for people who are bystanders. Trust me, the crowd loves a good throwdown. But at some point, you got to ask yourself, what does it actually accomplish? And if it just accomplishes getting people riled up, closing their minds even harder against whatever truth or whatever idea you're trying to present to them, you really haven't accomplished anything. All you've done is indulged your ego, and now you're moving on looking for a fresh victim. We can do better. And I want to thank Paul Rosenberg for being the guy who pointed that out to me and, and, I mean, really helped me understand When you're talking to the brainwashed, the first thing you have to remember is that every one of us has been brainwashed at some level. Every one of us is working to find our way out of the swamp of misinformation. So be gentle with those who are a few steps behind you. Somebody was probably gentle with you, and you owe them a debt of gratitude.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to
1: take a moment here to uh, thank my sponsors. And those sponsors would include uh, Landmark, Risk Management, and Insurance. If you have commercial insurance, I understand that can be a pretty complicated thing. And, and so I want you to get a hold of my friend Steve Burgess. I've thoughtfully put a nice little contact link there at the bottom of my show notes today at the thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes for December 28th. You can get in touch with Steve and the folks at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and just figure out where you are. Do you have the right coverage? Are you covered in the ways that you think you're covered? Is there something that's been overlooked? There are a lot of questions when it comes to commercial insurance, and Steve is a super good guy. His heart is in the right place. He is a trustworthy man, and I'm proud to call him my friend, and I recommend him to you if you have need of his services. All right. Moving on here. I want to talk a little bit about uh, lockdowns because uh, just coming off the Christmas holiday, it was it was very apparent there were a lot of people that were having to make choices. I mean, look, I didn't spend a ton of time on social media. Thankfully, I was staying in a place where, uh, you know, cellular coverage was pretty sparse and Internet coverage was just not an option. So while I did get on social media a few times, I saw a number of people who were lamenting and sometimes uh, feeling very sad about the fact that we really wanted to be together for the holidays with family, but we couldn't do it. And sometimes it was out of concern for loved ones or concern for, we don't want to be seen as, as defying, you know, the lockdown mandates. And we've been told, stay away, limit your gatherings, wear masks, social distance, don't travel, and so forth. And I understand that people are afraid. And I think that this, you know, this goes back to that uh, mass media propaganda. I think the way that, uh, that COVID is being reported, it takes what is a real problem, a real virus, which poses a real threat, and exaggerates it to the point where people have started losing their minds. We treat everyone as if they are some vector for illness and that they are, you know, some kind of existential threat to us because they're here to get us sick. You know, I'll, I'll give you a case in point here. Um, I could not uh, handle the thought of my mom being alone on Christmas Day. And she's had other Christmases alone in the past. There's, there's been times when, you know, she celebrated Christmas by herself. Usually my sister would, you know, come down and have Christmas dinner with her or whatever. But uh, this year, that was just not going to be an option. Why? Because COVID And I can't tell you how that weighed on me. And and you've heard me talk about this on the show before. I've become extremely conscious of the fact that she has been not just alone, but desperately alone for most of this year. We have limited our trips out of concern for, well, you know, we don't want to take a chance. She's She's at an age group and in a health state where she would be considered high risk. But I'm having a hard time reconciling the idea that, well, you know, is as long as she dies of something other than covid even if she dies in loneliness yeah that's uh, you know we've done our part and we can be proud that we did our part to prevent the spread of covid you know i'm sorry and i'm not trying to offend anybody by saying this but that is unacceptable to me and so my my beautiful wife and my kids we we planned a little surprise and we managed to pull it off without letting my mom know that we were traveling to where she is we, uh, we traveled to, to her hometown, and we stayed the night elsewhere. She wasn't prepared to have company, but, uh, but you know I called her and asked, how are you doing? How are you going to celebrate Christmas tomorrow? Oh, well, I don't know. You know I'm going to be by myself, so I'll, I'll figure something out. She wasn't feeling sorry for herself. She was totally okay with it and resigned to the fact that that's just how it has to be this year. Well, the next morning we got up. My wife made fresh cinnamon rolls, as in they weren't even baked yet. And as we drove over to my mom's house, I got her on the phone. Hey, Merry Christmas! How are you doing? And uh, you know, asked her. You know, so uh, what are your plans for today? Have you had breakfast yet? She's like, Oh, I'm just thinking about uh, you know getting something for breakfast. And I said, You know what? Sounds good. Cinnamon rolls. She's like, Oh, that would be wonderful. And at that point, I started knocking on her front door, and she's like, Oh, hang on a second. Somebody's at the front door. I'm like, Well, go ahead and get it. I'll wait. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but it was just awesome. <laughs> she opens the door and there we are and it was you know, and we asked her just just so you know. We asked her, "Do you do you want us to mask up? We'll put on our masks before we come in, um but we wanted we wanted you to know that we wanted to be with you today." And her response was, "I want to see your faces." And so we went in and we spent a Christmas morning with her. Baked up the cinnamon rolls. Yes. They were incredible. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. I need a moment here to compose myself. They were, they were really, really good. And, and I shared this on social media, and, and I hesitated as I did so in the sense that, on the one hand, it really was a joyous moment. And, and I felt like this is worth sharing. This is one of the happiest things that I've seen. The look on her face when we came to be with her was priceless. Uh, it was priceless. But I worried that there would be those who might say, well, this is just some kind of political stunt. And I assure you, it, it was just a desire to not leave my mother alone on, on Christmas Day. But sure enough, I, you know, I heard from a friend who said, you know, in a time not too far from here, you might be dragged from your house by men with guns and badges for murdering grandma because you guys went and showed up on her doorstep. And I suppose that's a possibility. But you know what? I would rather risk that possibility. I would rather risk whatever it is that we risked than leave her there to be alone, knowing that we're doing the right thing in protecting her from a virus which may or may not have her name on it. We weren't reckless. We weren't, you know, exposing her. If anybody had felt the least bit sick, we wouldn't have done it. But see, we just know how to use common sense. All right. I'm taking the long way around here, but 12 times the lockdowners were wrong. This is an article by Philip W. Magnus. It's published on the American Institute for Economic Research. And I'm not going to go through all of them. I want you to check out the article for yourself. Phil says, This has been a year of astonishing policy failure. We are surrounded by devastation conceived and cheered by intellectuals and their political handmaidens. And he says, The errors number in the thousands. So please consider the following little more than a a first draft, a mere guide, to what will surely be unearthed in the coming months and years. He's talking about the lockdowners, saying we trusted these people with our lives and liberties. Here's what they did with that trust. And I'm sharing this with you because one of the reasons why we took the risk to go visit mom on Christmas is because the lockdowners have been so wrong so many times. And some of the examples that Phil Magnus gives is Anthony Fauci says, lockdowns are not possible in the United States. He said that back on January 24th. U.S. government and World Health Organization officials advise against mask use. That was February and March. Anthony Fauci's decimal error in estimating COVID's fatality rates. That came out on March 11th. By the way, he debunks every one of these. And I mean, this is not just... And I think he was wrong here because it's like, no, here are the numbers. Here are the facts and figures. Phil is an economist, and he's also an economist who has extraordinary focus on details, So as far as authoritative sources, this is one of the guys I like to go to. It's not that he's never wrong, but he's not wrong often because he really sweats the details. Then he tells us about uh, how the uh, lockdown was wrong with the two weeks to flatten the curve back on March 16th. Neil Ferguson uh, predicts a best case U.S. scenario of 1.1 million deaths. That was back on March 20th. Researchers in Sweden used the Imperial College model to predict 95,000 deaths. That was April 10th. Scientists suggest that ocean spray spreads COVID. That was April 2nd. Uh, Number eight on the list, Neil Ferguson predicts catastrophic death tolls in U.S. states that reopen. That was May 24th. Number nine, Anthony Fauci credits lockdowns for beating the virus in Europe. That was July 30th. And by the way, they were dead wrong on this. Phil tells you exactly how and why. Number 10, New Zealand and Australia declare themselves COVID-free. August to present. By the way, have you seen the lockdowns there? They sure don't act like they're COVID-free. Number 11, renewed lockdowns are just a straw man. Nobody's advocating for lockdowns. That was in October. And by the way, yeah, we've, we've seen more than our share of lockdowns since then. Number 12, Anthony Fauci touts New York as a model for COVID containment which he did June through December. Now, this is a very masterful deconstruction of 12 specific instances in which the lockdowners said one thing and then were shown to be completely wrong. Why do we not hear any mea culpas from those in power? Why does the media not do its job as watchdogs and hold them accountable and say, hey, you guys were dead wrong on this? Yeah, the silence is deafening. And again, it just leads me to this conclusion that if you really want to know what's going on, you have got to sharpen your skills of perception and become the equivalent of a human truth detector. And by the way, it's not impossible. You don't need an advanced degree or the right combination of letters behind your name in order to do that. You just need an unquenchable desire to know for yourself and a willingness to do the homework. And thus endeth this hour of the show visit my show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. Thanks again for
0: joining us. This is the Brian Hyde Show.